Very good. If you would turn with me to the book of Matthew, first book of the New Testament. We go from Malachi to Matthew. It's only one page, but it's 400 years. So, we're going to be reading the first 17 verses, which will be scintillating. So, this is the genealogy of Matthew. So, listen carefully as come to one of these passages, and you need to be reminded, this is the Word of God, and uh, we, need, we can learn from it. So, Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. Pray for all these names. So let's listen carefully. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. We've just gone through a significant chunk of Israelite history. This is split into three for a reason, which we'll see at the end. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of uh, Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So we have just covered from David the king to the exile, approximately 500 years uh, there. Verse 12, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. So we've got to bring back some of these names. These are awesome names. And Zerubbabel, the father of uh, Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Elakim, and Elakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Another 530 years. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us to the Gospel of Matthew this morning to experience this epic drama of the life of Christ. Help us to learn more about your son Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We think we already know him. We think we already know the story. We think we already know the characters. 
And this book will reveal that we think too much and know too little. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us and help us to see Jesus all over again. Help us to come to know him in an entirely new way. Help us to follow him as we never have before. And as always, we pray that you would give us understanding. Help us to be amazed. Help us to wonder. So Lord, once again, teach us what to believe. Teach us how to live. Build our faith. Draw us near. And help us worship you through the hearing of your word this morning. So we pray, speak through these words of this gospel today. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus as we spread this year, spend this year walking with him. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Some of you know I read a lot of fiction. I love mysteries and spy stories and techno-thrillers, and I can't get enough of them. Every time I read a good story, my heart thumps a little faster. I especially love a good adventure story, tales filled with daring quests and dangerous journeys. Those have always been among my favorites. Even as a child, when I was reading with a flashlight under the covers, don't tell mom, Somewhere in the deepest part of my soul, I knew life had to be a grand adventure, or it was no life at all. The ancients used to refer to a human being as a homo viator, a person on the way, a man or a woman on a journey, a quest, an adventure. Later in life, when I first heard that Latin phrase, it rang true. I know we're all homo viators, people on the way of an adventure. I can remember one summer, not exactly sure which summer, but it was around 8th or ninth grade. Um, I was working at a summer camp. It was probably one of my very first jobs. And one of the other staff members there gave me a book called The Hobbit. And I can still remember Tolkien's first line, in a hole in the ground there lived the Hobbit. Ten words into the book and I was hooked. Psychologists refer to this process as narrative transport, meaning the capacity for a good story to grab us and move us emotionally. What's a hobbit, I wondered. And why does he live in the ground? And will he ever leave his hole? And what surprises and dangers and delights will he encounter? And if you've read the book, which is better than the movie, which is still pretty good, you know that both dangers and delights will abound. And as I entered Bilbo Baggins' journey, I wondered, what adventures will I have? And so with daring quests in my heart, I opened the New Testament, the grand story of Jesus, supposedly the greatest story ever told, an epic drama, and read a long and tedious list of Hebrew names. It is hard not to be disappointed. Where's the adventure? Where's the danger and the delight? Where are the homo viators, the people on great journeys in this story? And I have to admit, first time, I just skipped it. Sad to say, I thought starting a book this way was an epic fail. Or was it? One of the book series I like to read is by an author named Michael Connolly, and it's about Detective Hieronymus Bosch. 
Harry Bosch, and there's in the TV series, and I will tell you, it's very gritty. So that's sort of the warning caveat that goes with it. It's life on the dark side of L.A. But in every book, and probably almost every show, Harry Bosch repeats something when they keep asking him, why do you do this? He gets all the really hard cases that nobody else wants, nobody else can solve. And over and over again, he says, because either everybody matters or nobody matters. That's good to keep in mind as we come to this list of names, that everybody matters or nobody matters. Recently, as I'm preparing for this series on walking with Jesus, a year with the Savior, come to realize that Matthew, ever so slowly and gently, almost so as not to startle us, is slowly sweeping us into the greatest adventure tale ever told. And Matthew does it, provoking and surprising us right into the story of Jesus. The first two words here are also the Greek title for the book of Genesis, Biblios Genesis. There really is a method behind the madness. Genesis begins with four chapters that comprise the book of the generations of the world, creation and the birth of human culture. Chapter 5 of Genesis teaches us, Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And we get a long genealogy there. And my students hate it, because when I teach at RTS, we have one day during the semester where I give them essentially... Uh, seven impossible texts. And they have to go through those texts and figure out how are we going to get to Jesus out of here. And Genesis 5 is one of them. And it's just a long genealogy. And I'm like, do your best. Come back and tell me how you're going to get to Jesus here. And eventually they figure it out, sometimes with a little help. But the New Testament is a new book that tells us of Jesus as the last Adam. That's actually in 1 Corinthians 15. And the Gospel of Matthew could easily be titled The Book of the Generations of Jesus Christ. It's a story of the one who created the world, breathed the breath of life into Adam, was born into creation, and redeemed it from Adam's fall. And you see, Matthew wants us to do a Genesis double take. First creation, and now in Jesus' new creation. In other words, the original creation, damaged, flawed, broken, is being restored and transformed in and through the Messiah, Jesus. And then Matthew quickly moves into one of these infamous biblical genealogies. We don't usually begin adventure tales with a family tree. But in the ancient world, a genealogy grounded people in history. It told you who you were and where you came from. There's a story of a team with Wycliffe Bible translators who completed the Gospel of Luke for the first time in a language, except in Luke 3, they skipped the genealogy. And there was minimal interest in the story from this people group they were trying to minister to until they finally decided, believing that all Scripture is God-breathed, to translate the genealogy a fairly simple matter of adapting the names using the sound system of that language. And the response when it was read was astounding. It was the key to the reception of the gospel in that community. 
and a group that prized their ancestors and could name them going back many generations, they realized that this Jesus was a real person, unlike the mythical figures featured in their own religion. And so Matthew starts with a genealogy because right from the start, he wants you to know the identity of the king. Verse 1, the identity of the king. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You know, when we have new member visits, we do during the year, and meet with people and receive them into membership. And one of the elders usually asks something along the lines of, what's your favorite part of the Bible, favorite book, favorite passage, favorite verse, something like that. No one ever answers Matthew 1, 1 to 17. Hasn't happened yet. A couple of you are hoping to join. Just keep that in your hip pocket. Instead, when we come to this passage, we're more likely to ask, why does Matthew begin his account of the life of Christ with this boring genealogy? And most people just skip these lists when they read Matthew or Luke. But there's important things for us to notice here. And again, remember that everybody matters or nobody matters. And I want to suggest this text is one of the most important passages in the Bible. Matthew 1, 1 to 17 is one of the most important passages in the Bible for a number of reasons, but mostly it's the thread that binds the Old Testament and the New Testament together. In fact, this text is essential to properly understand the meaning of the Old Testament. Matthew's genealogy is a summary of nearly the entire Old Testament, going from uh, Genesis 11 to Malachi 4, capturing the stories of the patriarchs, the Israelites' slavery in Egypt, the exodus from Egypt to the Promised Land, there is David and Solomon and the divided kingdom, the destruction of Israel, the exile of Judah, and finally the return from exile. And Matthew very carefully links the second part of the Bible with the first by citing the Old Testament 61 times directly. Comparison, Mark has 31, Luke has 26, and John has 16. Matthew uses the phrase (coughs) to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets 10 times. Matthew clearly identifies Jesus as the promised and long-awaited Messiah. The evidence presented is overwhelming. Jesus is presented as the fulfillment of all that the prophets of old were longing for. So the Gospel of Matthew opens with the genealogy of a king. And these verses are important because Jewish people who made up Matthew's audience were vitally interested in a person's genealogy. The New Testament rests upon the accuracy of this genealogy. (coughs) Excuse me. Because it establishes that Jesus is of the line of Abraham and of the line of David. Both of those are significant. The line of Abraham places him in the nation, and the line of David puts him on the throne. And that's important to understand. Matthew's not writing a strict genealogy 
that includes everybody. He's tracing the royal line of David as it comes down to Jesus. A better way to describe the relationships between the names in Matthew is X begat Y rather than X was the father of Y. In other words, it's not necessary that one person was biologically the father of the person in the next generation, but rather that he was the ancestor of that person. For example, he could have been a grandfather. Indeed, Matthew is not trying to give us a literal one-to-one corresponding list of uh, people who gave birth to other people until we get to Jesus. He wants us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, the long-awaited Messiah. He does this in three very specific ways. First, we see in verse 1, he is the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of Abraham. That would rock a Jewish audience. They would have a hard time getting past first verse 1. Christ is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham that he will be the father of many nations and the peoples on earth will be blessed through him. We see that in Genesis 12 where God tells him, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The genealogy genealogies are central to the nation Israel. And through them, they could be established whether a person has a legitimate claim to a particular line. So, for example, when Israel returned from captivity, returned from exile, we read in Ezra 2, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. So it was possible in Ezra's day to check the register of the tribe of Levi. And you could remove anyone who made a false claim. Someone walks in and says, I'm from the tribe of Levi. I want to be a priest. And they could open the genealogy. And you don't show up here. You don't get to be a priest. Furthermore, every king has to have a royal lineage. His ancestry is what's most important about him. Kings have to be in the royal line in order to qualify to be on the throne. Matthew begins with a family tree that traces the right of Jesus to reign. The first sentence of the Gospel of Matthew introduces not only this genealogy, but the entire Gospel and, in fact, the entire New Testament. This sentence answers the question, What is this book about? And the answer is Jesus. And who is this Jesus? Well, this sentence tells you what they want you to know first. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And the genealogy that follows is given by Matthew to prove the validity of what Matthew claims in that first sentence. Second, we see the Old Testament promise fulfilled in Christ because he's the son of David. The story begins with a very familiar name, David, probably the most famous name in Israel. Not only then, but also now. Well-educated scribes and Pharisees of that day knew the Messiah by this name, as did the common people. And we'll see that several times in Matthew, Matthew 12. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Matthew 22, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. 
However, the house of David is buried in obscurity by the time Jesus is born. How could they imagine the Messiah coming out of David's family, even though it's repeatedly promised, going all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is being spoken to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that promise gets repeated throughout the Old Testament. We find it in most of the prophets multiple times in the Psalms, Psalms 89. You have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Now David's been dead for almost a millennium at the start of Matthew. And so we see, as we read earlier today, the Messiah comes like a root out of a dry ground. Isaiah 53, we read Isaiah 11 earlier, but Isaiah 53 says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And then that branch, the righteous branch, comes who is a greater king and a greater Lord than David and his descendants ever were. And Matthew is reminding you that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God has given to David. It's a big promise. It goes far beyond this little nation of Israel. It concerns the child who would be born and the son who would be given the one we adore during the Christmas season. Here's the point. Jesus' birth is the climax of the entire story of God's relationship with Israel. Jesus is the end to which the entire biblical story is pointing. The point of this genealogy is establishing what Matthew declares in verse 1, Jesus' claim to David's throne. For 600 years, David's throne has been empty. But David's line is where the Messiah would come from. Stories about David have been told for over a thousand years. Imagine the impact of Matthew's declaration of Jesus' kingship right here in first century Judaism. Third, Matthew makes it clear through this genealogy that Christ is the center of history. In verse 1, by his wording, Matthew suggests that Jesus is ushering in a new creation. This is a monumental turning point in history. In verse 17, we see things are working in a pattern throughout history. Fourteen generations of patriarchs from Abraham to David. Fourteen generations of kings from David to the exile. And fourteen generations from the exile to the Christ. All the major points of Israel's history are a stepping stone on the way to Christ. And because this is a somewhat selective genealogy, it becomes clear these names were chosen carefully. And that's because Matthew wants you to know the people of the king. The people of the king. All these middle, verses 2 through 16, Matthew ties much of the understanding of Jesus' kingship to the Old Testament. And he begins with this genealogy. These 40 names represent patriarchs, kings, and captives. And they tell the history of God's faithfulness to Old Testament Israel. In fact, this genealogy teaches us some great truths about the Lord Jesus. 
That's what I'm going to concentrate on the rest of our time here. This genealogy teaches us so many things. I would love to go through it, look at all the stories that are brought to mind by all the names recorded here. Every time you look at a name, there's a story because everybody matters or nobody matters. You see the name Jacob, stories come to mind. Boaz and Obed, stories come to mind. Solomon, some of the other great kings, stories come to mind. And on and on. And I'd love to do the whole morning to evening thing and share all those stories with you, but we're not going to do that today. But it would be a worthwhile exercise to study on your own. Who are all these people? If you study these names in detail, it's almost as if God has pulled together a rogues gallery. These are not the people that we would pick. I've already said we don't know much about every person on the list, but the ones that we do know about, nearly all of them have notable moral failures on their spiritual resumes. Abraham lied about his wife, Sarah. Isaac did the same thing. <coughs> Jacob was a cheater. Judah was a fornicator. David was an adulterer. Solomon was a polygamist. Manasseh was the most evil king Israel ever had, and we could go on and on. The very best of these men had flaws, <coughs> and some are so flawed, it's impossible to see their good points. It's remarkable that people like this make up Jesus' family tree. On the list is a murderer, a fornicator, an adulterer, a liar, a deceiver. These are great sinners. What does that show us? Simply put, it shows us the grace of the king. The grace of the king. Big observation about this list. It's not accidental. doesn't appear in any other genealogies in the Bible. This list includes women. That in itself is unusual because when the Jews made a genealogy, didn't include women. <coughs> Trace the family tree from father to son. But Matthew includes four women in his list. Tamar, verse 3. Rahab and Ruth, verse 5. And Bathsheba, verse 6. And these are unlikely people. They all have a dubious reputation or background. Tamar, the mother of Perez, who in Genesis 38 played the role of a prostitute in order to have children after her husband died. Rahab, listed as the mother of Boaz, was a prostitute when she first enters the biblical story in Joshua 2. She is also a foreigner. Then there's Ruth who, like Tamar, is a widow, and like Rahab, was a foreigner. We find her in the book of Ruth. We discover she's a member of the Moabite nation and excluded from worship in Israel. Bathsheba. Matthew doesn't even write her name. He refers to her as the wife of Uriah the Hittite, which means she may have been a foreigner, she was an adulteress at the hands of King David, and after he killed her husband, she was a widow. So Matthew deliberately includes all of them in his genealogy. Two prostitutes and adulteress. And in this genealogy, Matthew is pointing us towards Jesus' identity and mission. 
He would bring hope to the widow and mercy to the sinner and good news, not just for Jews, but for all mankind. In one way or another, all these women were outsiders. Matthew is highlighting God's providence and using unlikely people for his purposes. This is a broken, deceitful, adulterous line that God is using to save the world. And with such a list, Matthew is giving us clues about the kinds of people that the Messiah came to save. He is going to be a savior for women and men who are both saints and sinners, Jews and Gentiles. Many can look at the stories of these men and women and find some reflection of themselves. It's little wonder that Matthew's Christmas story features foreigners who come to worship Jesus and concludes with a great commission given to his followers to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then finally, my favorite part, we get to verse 17 here, which reads, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. 14, 14, 14. Matthew works hard to make the list come out this way. We've noted already the genealogy is not complete. There are more generations listed in the books of First and Second Kings than get mentioned by Matthew. And Matthew's not ignorant of that. He's doing this on purpose. He wants a genealogy that comes out to 14, 14, 14. Why? Got to do some thinking here. We have to go to the, actually to the book of Revelation. In particular, Revelation 13, which we covered, as you remember, back in 2010. Specifically, we go to Revelation 13, 18, which reads, This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, at the time, I told you the following. Regarding the number 666, what is the number used throughout the Bible, and particularly throughout the book of Revelation, as a sign of completeness? It's the number seven. Seven is a symbol of completeness. The number six is not seven. It is incomplete. The dragon is incomplete. The beast from the sea is incomplete. The beast from the earth is incomplete. 666. A sign of being incomplete. So we might say today, major fail. Father, Son, Holy Spirit would be 777, completely complete. False gods who wage war against the saints, 666, utterly incomplete. Now back to Matthew and his genealogy of 14, 14, 14. Why? Because of Christ who completes the list. Break down the 14s further and you get six sets of seven. And with six sets of seven, what comes next? The seventh seven who is Christ. The perfection of perfections, the perfectly finished work of God. Christ is the end and the perfection of this list, this genealogy. He's the one this list points to, yearns for, and culminates in. With him, the list is complete in a way that nothing has been completed since the foundation of the world. In Christ, the true Israel has come. The completion of all the genealogies has arrived in him. In Christ, the Sabbath of Sabbath, Sabbaths, the seventh, seventh, has come. There is nothing more that God need do, nothing more uh, to fulfill 
All these things, they all come to fulfillment in Christ. This is how Matthew begins his gospel, so you'll know up front what it's all about. This is how Matthew ends his gospel, sending forth the disciples into an era of completion and fulfillment, bearing tidings of a new creation and a perfected kingdom. We end with this genealogy, this list. Why would God include women like this on his list? It's not just the women. Think about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. Major sinners, all of them. Why include people like that? I think there's three answers to that question. He did it to send a message to self-righteous people. Matthew was written especially to Jews. Many of their leaders, Pharisees in particular, were self-righteous and judgmental towards others. They truly thought they deserved eternal life. What a shock it would be to read this genealogy filled with liars and murderers and thieves and adulterers and harlots. It is not a pretty picture. It's not a clean family tree. This list is a stinging rebuke to judgmental self-righteousness. You know what this means? It means Jesus was born into a sinful family. He comes from a long line of sinners. You know, if it wasn't for what we read last week and the Holy Spirit coming to Mary, he wouldn't be sinless. And he did it so that God's grace might be richly displayed. If you come from a family like this, you can't exactly boast of your heritage. Sure, you had some ancestors who were rulers and kings, but they were also great sinners. You look at this list, questions come up. Can a prostitute go to heaven? Yes or no. Can an adulterer go to heaven? Can a murderer go to heaven? Can a liar go to heaven? And you had better say yes, because Rahab and David are both going to heaven. And Rahab is a prostitute and a liar, and David is an adulterer and a murderer, and they're both in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith. When you read the stories of these men and women on this list, You're not supposed to focus on the sin, but on the grace. The hero of this story is God. His grace shines through the darkest of human sin as he chooses flawed men and women and places them in Jesus' family tree. And third, he did it so we would focus on Christ. A lot of people, especially today, are actually intimidated by Christ. They cover him up with a lot of religious paraphernalia. And then they look at all the trappings and it's all very intimidating. And to many people in the world today, Jesus seems too good to be true. And the genealogy in the Bible is to let us know he had a background a lot like yours and mine. They called him a friend of sinners. They meant it in a derogatory way. But it's a label that I think we're immensely grateful for. And he said in Luke 5, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Luke 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It's almost Christmas time. Many of you are going to be uh, traveling home to spend time with your families. Some of your families will be coming here to spend time with you. And some of you don't feel too good about that. You'd rather not be going home this year, but you have to. You have family members who embarrass you. 
Some of you are going to have to spend time with people who have hurt you deeply in the past. Mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts and grandparents and distant relatives. And some of them you'll be glad to see and the others, well, some of them you'd rather not see again. In a congregation this size, we're going to have relatives, family, who are liars, who are adulterers, thieves, incestuous, filled with anger and bitterness. Some are evil in bizarre ways. And you wish you didn't have to do what you know you've got to do. Go home and face those family members at Christmas. Jesus understands the way you feel. He comes from a disreputable family. His family tree is decorated with notable sinners. He knows what it's like to have relatives who embarrass you. He knows all about dysfunctional family situations. And actually, I hope that encourages you. Because no matter what your past looks like or what your present feels like, no matter where you've been or what you've done, God can give a fresh start. He knows what you're going through this year at Christmas. So I hope you won't skip Matthew 1 in your Bible reading this Advent. This unlikely list of unlikely people may be the greatest chapter on the grace of God in all the Bible. In these forgotten names from the past, God turns the spotlight on fallen men and women and tells us everybody matters or nobody matters. And through their lives, we see what the grace of God can do. And that's good news. Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners. We're going to read several times over the next few weeks. Matthew 121. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus didn't come to make you religious. He came to save you from your sins. He didn't come to make you good. He came to save you from your sins. He didn't come to make you moral. He came to save you from your sins. He didn't come to make you feel better. He came to save you from her sins. He came to do for you what you could never do for yourself. He came to save you from your sins. This passage teaches us that Jesus is the one and only living and true Savior. And this genealogy is designed to show us that the one and only Savior is Jesus. He's the redeemer of all kinds of people, Women, men, Jews, Gentiles, all kinds and types. Genealogy lists good men and bad men. Abraham is listed, a good man, but a man with serious failings. Ahaz is listed, a bad man with no redeeming qualities. Good women are listed in this genealogy, Ruth. Women of doubtful background are listed in this genealogy, Rahab. Good men who fail are listed in this genealogy. In fact, it's Fascinating how David is introduced. Probably the single most famous person in the second half of their history after Moses. Verse 6, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew is reminding us, everyone needs a savior. Jew and Gentile, good and not so good, righteous and wicked, even the righteous in this genealogy need redemption. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of all kinds and all types of men and women. And God chose sinful, broken, unlikely people. I mean, who else does he have? To come near to Jesus, 
to come near to a perfect love and a perfect power to restore all things. Jesus is the one who can take all the broken things in your life and restore them, and all your sad stories will come untrue. So don't let Matthew's dull-sounding introduction fool you. This is adventure storytelling at its very best. This is a true story that reads like fiction. And what adventures, dangers, and delights will Jesus encounter? And if we follow him, what adventures will come our way? Welcome once again to Walking with Jesus, A Year with the Savior. It is an epic adventure, and you're in for the ride of your life. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us an adventure story. A story that starts with sinful men and women who desperately need a Savior. A story that ends with a Savior who comes to save desperate men and women. Thank you for showing us that Jesus came to save sinful, broken, unlikely people like us. And he came to save us from our sins. This Advent, we look forward to his coming, and we look forward to his saving. And we give you great thanks for sending Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so we pray in the name of the King, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.